Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Dialogue Between the Lines, where each week we chat live with authors and other publishing industry professionals. Today, I'm happy to welcome back Michael Angel as my guest host, who is sitting in for Joshua Graham. Joshua, as you know, has just released his latest thriller, Dark Room, and is on a pretty hefty book tour this month. So, please check out my esteemed guest host, Michael Angel, by going to his website at michaelangelwriter.com. And you can also find Michael Angel on Facebook and Twitter. And his fantasy novels can be found on Amazon.com, BNN.com, and Smashwords. And his titles are The Detective and the Unicorn, Centaur of Crime, and Shards, The Dark Fell Saga, all of which uh, are incredible stories. I've read them all and highly recommend putting Michael Angel on your reading list. Next week, my guest host will be C.J. West, who wrote The End of Marking Time, Taking Stock, and also Addicted to Love. I'll be happy to welcome back CJ next week as well. But before we get rolling on today's show, we'd like to take a moment to invite you to connect with us on our website, www.dialogbtl, for between the lines, dialogbtl.com. Those of you in the chat room listening live to today's broadcast, don't forget to ask some questions. You can find entry to the chat room by heading over to blogtalkradio.com slash dialogue and clicking on today's show. As soon as the show begins, the chat room appears in your, if you scroll down the page. Each week we offer up a few choice chat room questions to our guests, so please do, um, do log in to, that, uh, to the chat room. And please stay tuned as well because in just a few short minutes we'll have joining us New York Times bestselling author and actually internationally bestselling author Elizabeth George, who will tell us about her latest novel from Dutton entitled Believing the Lie. It's the number 17 uh, book in the Inspector Lindley mystery series. I can't wait to begin today's talk with her, but for right now I'm going to talk to my guest host. Uh, Hey, Michael, welcome. How are you today? And thank you for sitting in for Joshua. Oh, well, thank you. I always love coming on the show, and uh, it's, it's quite a privilege. And I actually have two really quick things I wanted to share with you. I thought you'd find sure. you and our audience Absolutely. might find somewhat amusing. Uh, sure. Number one is uh, my evil twin, uh, J.D. Cutler, uh, mm-hmm. who recently wrote a Western, uh, a Western uh, with, a, believe it or not, a lesbian couple at the center of it. Uh, mm-hmm. The book is called Sagebrush and Lace. And it just recently got onto one of Amazon's extended bestseller lists, this time under the genre Westerns. Um, oh, wow. It's popping up under various other GLBT-related subcategories. So it continues to rise to the ranks. So I have to pass some credit to my evil twin there. 
Um, and secondly, the other part I wanted to share was a very amusing thing. Last time I was on your show, we talked a bit about audiobooks and working with audio artists. And a little bit of advice to anybody who is working directly with your audio artist in the future or aspiring writers, uh, not to put too many difficult words in there. We actually tried a couple of times, uh, and, and there was a, a word that uh, the artist couldn't quite get right, so we simply edited it out. Um, so I, I, that's the lesson I learned for today, I guess, is that it's extremely difficult to pronounce the word Quetzalcoatl. Um, it's difficult to even come up. Yeah, I know it's a tough one. It's a, that's the it's an Aztec god. So we changed the dialogue line to read an Aztec god. We just didn't name the Aztec god. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Oh, go ahead. Oh, but anyway, so I, that's all I had to say was that that is one of those uh, little things you learn going along uh, with the voice artist is. Some of them, even if you give them a pronunciation guide, you're going to have a problem with a couple of those lines. So anyway, just make it easy on them and give them something easier to chew on, I think, is, is the lesson to be learned. <laughs> so you have uh, several novels out right now and one collaboration, um, and uh, the J.D. Cutler uh, novel, The Sagebrush and Lace, which is doing fabulously well, I'm hearing. So, um, But what are you working on now? Well, right now, um, just started out uh, with a brand new uh, novel in the area of paranormal suspense called I Married the Third Horseman. You actually will probably be somewhat familiar with it, Susan, because it was based on actually an extended short story um, during one of the seminars that you and I have attended together. And uh, you know, of course, uh, our readers probably know the field called paranormal romance, uh, the really uh, booming field where you have a paranormal character like, say, uh, Twilight or you have a vampire or a werewolf and that kind of thing. Well, in this mm-hmm. particular one, as you can guess from the title, you have somebody who married a mythical creature, and now they want out of it. So I guess in a way this is um, the world's first paranormal divorce novel. Uh, so if, if there isn't a genre, I'm going to say claim to it as having written the first one in that area. Oh, take claim, definitely. That's funny. What about, what about yourself, Susan? What have you been up to? Well, you know, I've I've been uh, teaching an awful lot. In fact, I have been um, on the road, as, and I figured this out. I didn't realize it until last week sometime. Um, I had been on the road teaching and doing signings and, and readings since last year, since 2011, April of 2011, and I, I couldn't think, I was wondering why am I so exhausted why am I so tired and I realized I've been traveling for 13 months and that's a pretty good reason to be a little bit tired so um but you know and in that time of course I've written a couple of novels so um so it's all good but um you know but yeah I'm, I'm having a lovely time with it as well so I just wanted to uh, uh, be brief because I, I'm really excited about today's guest, Michael. Um, we have, uh, and we're honored to have with us someone whose latest um, novel entitled Believing the Lie, the number, like I said, number 17, Inspector Lindley Mystery, has uh, garnered some incredible praise um, by the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, the Courier Mail, I mean, all of these uh, really established uh, newspapers are, are 
offering up incredible reviews for Believing the Lie, and, and justly so. I, I just wanted to read one from Suspense Magazine, and it reads, As always with Mrs. George, the reader has no idea what will happen on the next page, and when you believe you have it all figured out, a new character or storyline is uncovered that throws you back in to the beginning. The plot lines are abundant, and only Inspector Lindley's prowess and his very smart friends will uncover the truth under this wealthy family's web of lies. A complete A-plus for the mystery realm. And, you know, I want to read the blurb, but I see that we have Ms. George hanging on the phone, so I'd like to introduce Elizabeth George. You are on the air. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me to uh, to take part in this conversation. Oh, thank you. I'm just thrilled to have you on the show um, as as uh, you know, uh, we've we've bumped into each other a couple of times through writing conferences and um, on Whidbey Island, and uh, and I was uh, telling my esteemed co-host how we actually met and how um, giddy and nervous I was to teach that one class with you at the writers conference in, uh, <laughs> on Whidbey Island this past uh, this past. March. I was just thrilled and honored to be um, sitting there with you talking about fiction. Um, but so what I, just I thought was, say but, you know, thank you for saying that. But what I thought was so interesting was how similar our processes turned out to be, because it we ended wasn't up that something. Yeah, we ended up more or less talking about the same the same things, even though we might go at them a little bit differently. So I found that really? very, very very interesting. Yeah, That's fascinating it was, considering you two write in such different areas. I, I hope we get to hear a bit more about this in the course of the interview. Yeah, oh, well, I hope so. It, it, it's absolutely incredible. We had such a lovely time chatting, and um, and and I love teaching. So it's just a pleasure to hear how other people go about uh, writing. But yes, we had a very similar process, and so um, I I felt um, I was on cloud nine. Uh, so I was thrilled to to know your process as well. But I wanted to um, talk to you specifically about your story, and um, at, of course, believing the lie. It's just a fabulous book. Um, I and uh, let me back up and, and state that I give reading, and this is terrible of me. I know that there are readers that just dive into everything and will finish a book no matter what because they started it. They feel some. Uh, reason that they have to finish a book. I'm not that way. If I don't have, if I'm not captivated within the first couple of pages, um, then I'm a little bit disappointed. But I give a book 20 to 40 pages before I will set a book down. I never once, not once, felt that way with believing the lie. And I just have to say thank you for that. But I attribute it to your incredible character development. Thank you. That's one of the things that I was really committed to right from the beginning when I started to write, when I decided that I was going to you know, take writing on as a potential career. Um, I have always loved books that are books about character. And so in, in my novels, that's exactly what I wanted to do, was to create characters who were living, breathing, real human beings who demonstrated what um, William Faulkner called the human heart in conflict. So I, I never wanted to have any throwaway characters. Nobody who exists just to ask questions like who, what, when, where, what, how, why. Everyone is there who has. Uh, everyone has a reason for being there, but they also um, 
I also want to give the impression that they have lives that are ongoing outside of the pages of the novel, even if they have only a one- or two-time appearance in that book. Mm. Oh. Well, I'll tell you, um, and, and you've done that exquisitely. The um, My favorite, uh, and I, I want to call her a tertiary character, um, she appears twice. At least I'm at page 263. It's a 600-page novel, and um, it's lovely. But I'm at page 263, and so far she's appeared twice. This is the um, the woman that answers the door at this very um, private club, men's club, and uh, she is possibly one of the funniest characters I. <laughs> could ever read and then and so yes for her definitely and also though the character that picked up tim in his car um so and these are these are secondary or even tertiary characters that appear for reason and could you tell me a little bit about those characters not just that you've created this past life but that you've created it so well what did you do as an, a writer, to go to get that deep into that character. Well, what I always recognize is that you know, characters should have two things. You know, they should have an agenda, um, and they should have an attitude. So, uh, so the attitude is probably the most important thing that they can carry onto the page, so that the um, the the reader is able to see from their attitude that they are living, breathing human beings. In the case of the uh, the woman who answers the door at the club, you know, here's a woman who takes her job extremely seriously, and she certainly isn't going to be cowed by the fact that a member of the Metropolitan Police is trying to get inside this door of the club. And she's a really ancient thing. She looks like she's been there since the day that the club opened in the 1800s. But she still is, you know, she's, she's a tough old bird. And um, I, I had a lot of fun with her and her making her, like, three-point turns to kind of negotiate the lobby in the club to go from point A to point B. Um, but 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 this was something that I actually learned from the writer Ron Carlson, who is now actually the director of the creative writing program at University of California in Irvine. But I listened to a tape that Ron Carlson made many, many, many years ago in which he talks about character, and he gave a piece of advice that I found just wonderful and have always followed. And the way he puts it is that... Um, the, you know, he, he uses in this example a short story he wrote where a man is at a bar and this girl is doing this old, um, old-time um, kind of go-go dance up in a plastic booth above the bar. And, um, and she comes down and uh, he, he, looks at, he just glances her way and she says, don't even say it, I know your kind. And, his, and, and Ron's part, point was that, he, that every character has a day too. In other words, that, you know, a man comes home from work, he's just been in an automobile accident, but his wife has had a day too. And that needs to be reflected in every interaction that characters have with one time only characters or throwaway tertiary characters. 
Oh, and wow. that's what wow. I tried to do in all of my books. All these people that you see, even if they are just um, in the case of, of Tim and hitchhiking, taking him from point A to point B, mm-hmm. those people have ongoing lives. They have a day, too, and that's what's supposed wow. to be reflected. May I ask a follow-up question on that, kind of along that line that just absolutely fascinates me, which is one of the most, I won't say unique, but definitely one of the more rarefied elements of your work compared to uh, a lot of other writers is simply the fact that um, you've had such a long series of novels published. What do you do in order to keep, say, the primary characters fresh? In other words, giving the readers kind of what they expect. Obviously, we can't completely change a character overnight in, in a given novel, but what, you do, what do you do when you feel able to keep it fresh in the reader's mind that they get the sense this is a living, breathing, growing person in the middle of all this? Well, I think one thing that's really important in the series is to keep the, the um, series characters' stories opening instead of closing. There was a lot of controversy mm-hmm. when I um, when I eliminated um, the, the Inspector Lindley's wife a few books ago, mm-hmm. and uh-huh. she was elimin- she was eliminated in a really in a really kind of a brutal way. But it was a way that was in uh, in keeping with the novel that I was writing. Well, yes. So it, it was very disturbing for the readers for for that character to be murdered on her front step the way she was murdered in one of these senseless street killings. I mean, pretty similar to what's going on in Seattle right now, let's face it, where you know, an innocent bystander in Kapawi, you get shot right. by, by two guys having an argument on uh, you know, Martin Luther King Boulevard. So <laughs> what I oh, wanted to show <clears throat> what I wanted to show was that random nature of mindless killing. But at the same time, technically it serves yes. to open Lindley's story up. So when you keep opening a character's story up in a series, then that allows you as the writer to explore more facets of the character. It's just when you close it down that things get really stale. And so that's why re- readers can kind of look at my books and know that essentially nobody is safe because, <laughs> because everybody's, you know, everybody's story is ongoing. You know, I'm trying to think where I've seen that recently, but I, I, I agree with you 100% on that. I, I remember the fact that once it's established that, no, nobody is immune in the story to harm, putting them in harm's way, it, it adds that element of risk back where you can pay attention again, where people are yeah. not automatically going to go to autopilot, I think. It's sort of like the uh, there's a television show that that um, my husband and I um, watched on Netflix for a while. We haven't seen all of it because it's a long running show on British television. It's called MI5, uh-huh. and one of the strengths of MI5 is that just they'll just kill off one of the central continuing characters just like that. You'll be watching uh-huh. it and you'll go, "Oh my God, they just killed Danny." And uh, and so because of that, that makes every scene in which a character is in danger really suspenseful because you don't watch it thinking, oh, well, you know, we know he's going to get out of this because he's going to be back next week. No way. He may be dead. And they just, oh, right. they just kill people right, left, and center and then just bring in another fine British actor who then picks up a continuing role until he or she is eliminated. It's really a great way to have a long-running series when you have no nobody's sex. Right, 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 right. Well, I'll I just tell think, you... I just think it's fantastic, yeah. It is fantastic, and I'll tell you, there's something about... Now, I know that you're from the States, but if I picked this book up and didn't know that, I would think this is a British author writing this story. How in the world did you do that? Well, 
You know, it sounds can I it sounds like you've been speaking the Queen's English since you were born. <laughs> well, you know, part of it has to do with the, having spent a lot of time in England and doing a lot of traveling in England. Mm-hmm. So, over time you sort of get used to the cadence of the speech, uh the the difference between um their syntax and our syntax in American English. And then the, you know, making the location real is also, I think, a really important part of um, of of carrying off a, an authentic um, British novel, a novel that has mm-hmm. enough verisimilitude to it that that people would think that I myself am British. So anytime I write about a place, um, I've, I've been there, and if I manufacture a place or if I pick it up and move it, as I did several times in Believing the Lie, um, using actual places but actually just sort of picking up and moving them in the case of one, moving a, uh, a rather large house over to the to the shore of Lake Windermere from where it was originally. But most of the places actually do exist, and so you could t- take the book with you and, and walk the walk the streets as they're described in the novels, and um, in, in any one of the novels, you would find yourself in a place that's really, that, that's real and that's accurately portrayed, and I think that really helps then in making the books seem real. Wow, and they do seem real. It seems as though... Um like I said, that you were born there, and I'm wondering how many years of traveling in England and the UK that that you've done. I mean, how many years is this? This is well, it's, it, sort of, I, it's frightening to say that my first trip to England was in 1966. So uh-huh. <laughs> I look back now and go, "Oh my God, am I really that old?" Um, but but my first trip was in in 1966. I was a teenager, and I. I loved it. I mean, this was before they had changed their money, so they were still dealing in pounds, pence, shillings, half crowns, etc. Um, this was before they had learned, they had discovered how to wash the buildings, and you know that that for so the buildings were streaked with centuries of grime, and wow. it was incredibly, incredibly, incredibly atmospheric, and I just absolutely loved it. Then I went back for the first time, um, yeah, as a more serious. Um, Explorer in England in 1971, and then from then on in 75, and then the trips became more and more frequent. And once I started, uh, decided that I wanted to write British novels, then I began going and doing serious research in each of these locations so that I could completely understand the place where I was going to be writing about. But I I couldn't tell you at this point how many times I've been to England. I, I really don't know. You know, on a side note, it's kind of it's interesting what you mentioned is is, is that um, it was a friend of mine mentioning to me who, who's British saying that uh, whenever he sees something said in a Jean Le Carré novel, the earlier ones in the in the mid '60s, that he thinks they have to actually grind London back up so it looks authentic. You know, at yeah. that particular point. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, on a related note, I was curious also, um, uh, aside from your travels, um, when I was reading your bio a while back, I know that you used to teach English yourself, as a matter of fact, and um, you were an award-winning English teacher. And One of my biggest personal inspirations for writing has been uh, my own English teacher due to her love of language and her love of literature. Did your work in this field inspire or affect your work? Your work? Oh, yeah, it, it definitely did. You know, I... Um, 
I think probably what helped me the most as as a writer was when I taught two different two classes, one in uh called advanced grammar and vocabulary and another in advanced composition because when you're actually teaching writing beyond teaching literature, mm-hmm. when you're teaching writing, you uh can't help having a lot of the information that you're giving out to the students have a profound effect on your own writing. So I found those those were particularly good courses for me to for me to teach. And then of course mm-hmm. my students did a tremendous amount of writing in my English classes and um you know going over their papers and helping them see you know where they had gone wrong and what they were writing also was enormously um helpful to me. Then when I went back to teaching and started teaching mm-hmm. creative writing at the at the college level um that put me in a position of really starting to deconstruct what it was that mm. I was doing as a novelist. And um, and through that process, I uh, really began to learn more and more about the craft of writing. You know, writing is, is an art, but it is also a craft. And without some background in the craft, it makes the art part of it very, very difficult because you're relying solely on... Um, your artistry and your imagination, whereas if you have craft to fall back on, you've you've created yourself you've for yourself kind of a um, mm, kind of a soft landing for the hard spots that you come into. Awesome, wow. awesome. Can I, can I follow you, up that question? Oh, with sure, absolutely. Else? The other question I had on that same note was, given the fact that you've studied the craft and you and you've actually put uh, such a large number of books out over over time, have you seen? Let me let me let me see if I can phrase this question properly. Is in general, do you believe novels are substantially different, the ones that are published now, than they were say ten, twenty years ago? In other words, for example, are they? Uh, is there more pressure to, shall we say, get to an inciting incident when you kick off something? Uh, are readers asking for things that are faster, shorter, longer? More immersive. I definitely think. Yeah, I definitely think people's attention span is not what it once was. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you imagine that, um, you know, what were contemporary novels in the time of Nathaniel Hawthorne and um, and Herman Melville certainly mm-hmm. would not be considered contemporary reading today. You know, just <laughs> trying to get through Moby Dick or trying to get yes. through, you know, House of the Seven Gables or The Scarlet Letter is really enormously challenging for people because they don't have the um sort of they don't have the attention span and the wherewithal to to plumb the depths of complicated literature. So I do think that writing has changed appreciably. I also mm-hmm. think though that American American writing is very different from European writing too and that there mm-hmm. is a um you know there's been a tremendous influence there was a tremendous influence on american writing by this by um ernest hemingway with that mm-hmm. that clean clean spare style of writing that became really prevalent in american writing and still is to a certain extent um but you know but i also think that um you know we haven't been exactly assisted by the uh, the plethora of um outlets for uh, of communication um, mm. That that has that have allowed for some very bad writing to reach the light of day through mm. you know, the internet and e-books and e-publication and self-publication and things like that. So you know that that's put the reader in a position of you know having access to um, some pretty bad stuff as well as some really good stuff. And um, sometimes the really bad stuff seems. 
you know, while it is more immediately accessible to the reader, it doesn't exactly do much for the the cause of uh, the art of writing. Mm, interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I agree. And uh, we, but however, with the onset of eBooks and the internet and all of this, we're seeing some fabulous work come out and then the readers being able to decide what is good and what is bad and and luckily they're so inexpensive these days that if they're spending 99 cents for a book it's not such a i mean it it's disappointing for sure because 99 cents is 99 cents but um it's a lot better to get a 99 cent novel that is eh, rather than buying something that could have been published by Simon and Schuster for 14.99 and finding that you didn't like that very much either. So, you know, it's it's nice that we've got as authors that we have this um wider playing field, but um definitely the reader has to be very aware of of the um the author behind the work and the, you know, just the genre involved. Um I have well, to, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I just think that um, that you know part of the problem is the um, well, I suppose what it is is it, it's is the the um, difficulty that readers appear to have. Not all readers, of course, that some readers appear to have in <laughs> differentiating. Um, good, you know, the good from the bad, mm-hmm. in um, you know, in in being able to to see that there is ultimately an enormous payoff in sticking with a book that might be a little bit more difficult to get into, you know, for example, a good example of that is is um, A. S. Byatt's book Possession, which for me was it was gobsmackingly wonderful probably the finest novel that I've ever I've ever read and um and I and and it was not um necessarily initially an easy read and maybe it maybe indeed what it what possession is is a novelist's novel instead of a reader's novel I mean I don't know mm-hmm. but um but when you com- when I compare that to um well a good a good example would be uh, the appalling book called Fifty Shades of Grey that um, that I was entertained with a dramatic reading of last night, sitting with a group of six writers here on the island, and um, you know now now here's a book that's selling one was it 50 million copies or some just outrageous yeah. number, and it is beyond appallingly bad. It is it is just, <laughs> it is horrendous. And I suppose what we have to ask is, well, is there a place for, you know, horrendously bad books out well, there? But <laughs> selling fifty million isn't that something? But I, I'm I'm assuming now it could be wrong that you're not going to write a blurb for her. <laughs> so that, but but uh, that she doesn't appear to need whoever she is. You know, does not appear to to need it. But I mean, I, I was looking at these because one of the writers showed me her website when we were, you know, we were getting ready to do this dramatic reading, um, and and the, on her website it said that Time Magazine had named this woman one of the uh, 100 most influential people on the planet. Holy and I'm moly! Thinking, and I'm thinking, excuse me. Oh excuse my goodness! Excuse me. Where where well, are we heading if that is what 
is if that's if that is what you do to be named one of the hundred most influential people on the planet. Anyway, so I mean, I personally found it laughably. I mean, it really is. You, you know, well, feel free to quote me. It's the worst thing. One of the worst things I've ever read. Well, heard, what what read did you find? What did you find so appalling about? It? Was it the lack of character development? Was it grammar? What What exactly was bad about Fifty Shades of Grey? Um, well, let's see. It is. It is extremely hackneyed. Everything that she does um, in the first two chapters. We only could stand the first two chapters. Well, actually, it was really a chapter <laughs> and a half because we skipped to the end of the second chapter because it takes place at a great length in a uh, in a um, a hardware store where the hero comes in finally to buy some duct tape or some uh, masking tape from from the heroine. But um, um, well, just to give you a few examples, some of the things that I've told my students that I will shoot them if they ever do, right on the very first page, right on the very first page, she said the the narrative voice, um, or no, it is first-person narration, I believe. The narrator looks at herself in the mirror and self-describes. Oh, my, and, and I told my, you know, I've always told my students, don't even, don't even go there. Do not yeah. even go there. Because nobody does that. I looked at my brown eyes. You know, I, 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 I ran my fingers through my curly brown hair and tried to rearrange it in an attractive fashion. I mean, the whole the whole thing is written in that vein, and oh. it is it's appalling. It really is. I mean, I would urge you to uh, try to to just get your whole your hands on a on a copy, not to buy it for God's sake, but to uh, just to look at the first two chapters, and it will make your hair turn gray. You won't even What's have to look in the mirror. Hair? You'll feel it turning gray. <laughs> you know, on, on that, that same note, it's true. funny. It's funny you mention that because that whole mirror thing. I I remember reading something from I think the late fifties, and they were making fun of it back then. Oh, it's I mean, just it, incredible. It is it's a just absolutely incredible. And it goes on in that vein. I mean, she uh, she she walks into the hero's office because she's going to do an interview with him, and um, the description of the hero. <laughs> It's hilarious. It's hilarious. And um, everything in his office is described down to the nth detail. When she walks in, she trips and falls flat on her face. And one of the writers said, oh, oh, they do this kind of thing in S&M novels. (laughs) (laughs) And we were saying, what, do you you read a lot of S&M novels? And she said, oh, yeah, I read them all the time. And I won't tell you who that is because she's quite a distinguished literary writer. I just want to say something really quick, Michael. I just want to say, well, maybe this is why it's selling so much because people are in just utter awe that something like this could sell so people are buying it to read what's so bad about it. Have you no, that's a that? very bad idea. Then what people should do is they should go on whatever it is. So I think it's Amazon where you can get two chapters to look at and not yeah. Oh, yeah. buy it. That's what people should do because believe me, the two chapters will absolutely prove to you that you should not buy the book. And I don't you care what kind of—I mean, I don't care what kind of sex these people are having. I mean, it, it, it could not be titillating enough to make enduring anything in that book a reasonable thing to go through. I agree with you on the two chapters because it reminds me of, uh, I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said, one does not need to eat the whole egg to know it's rotten. Um, (laughs) Exactly. And in this case, I mean, you don't even have to crack the egg. 
Oh, I mean, it's just, it's just it, oh, it's because it's terrible. Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, I, I don't want to provide any more advertisement for it, but I will answer since we're on the subject. Is for all the writers and people who are listening for, in the audience, and everything. What do you have a particular cliche aside from the mirror thing that you would, would want to say? Just don't do it, folks. Just don't do it. Like personally, myself, because I have seen this where they, people start off a very dramatic cliffhanging opening, and it turns out it was all a dream. They oh, that's up, pretty bad. Ah! Yeah. So <laughs> do you have any any anything that you absolutely oh, here's one that drives, don't here's, do this, well, folks? Here, no, here's one that drives me crazy. Okay. Okay. I answered the phone. Hello, I said. <laughs> Excuse me? I, oh, my God. I always say, well, look. I answered the phone. It was John. I mean, whatever, yeah. but not. I answered the phone. Hello. I said. I mean, my God, for God's sake, that's just totally ridiculous. That drives me absolutely nuts. And it's sad oh, enough that's... to have hello there, but then the action tag of I said. Is just... <laughs> <laughs> of course, you answered the phone. What did you do? You go um, Amber. <laughs> Maybe even more specifically, do you see anything specifically in your genre, your field, that you're like, you know what, I wish people wouldn't do X in, in this oh. because it's been done to hmm. death? Well, of course, everything's been done. Um, mm-hmm. I would really have to think about that one for a while. <laughs> oh, I can't come up with anything other than hello I said off the top of my head. So, uh, so let, let's, let's go back to that, but I'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to think. It may pop into my brain. No problem, no problem. In that case, then, can I ask maybe a, a follow-up then, perhaps, on that? Is um, I'm, I'm a bit earlier in my own writing career, for example, in yourself, and I'm actually going to be starting on my first uh, sequels, you know, based on, of course, the ones, uh, the original novels that are, are selling pretty well. Like, for example, I did a fantasy novel called Centaur of the Crime, and it's a bit of crime fiction, but with a fantasy twist to it. Cool. And it'd be marvelous to hear, um, I, I like to joke about it, it's uh, C.S. Lewis meets C.S.I., um, <laughs> That, uh, do you have any advice when you're creating a series or doing a good sequel that meets reader expectations? Any any advice on, on doing book number two, number three? Oh, yes. Never, okay. never get talked into what I call obligatory scenes. Okay. What an, what an obligatory scene is, is that, okay, now does, when you're doing a sequel, does this mean that you, you, you're going to have some continuing characters? Yes. Okay. Never feel obliged to put every continuing character into every book because, quote, the reader must see them again. That is the path to the, the path to making yourself crazy. Um, mm, okay. And, and I, um, from the very beginning, I made sure that my um, that my editor understood that while I have a very very large cast of characters. One of the reasons I have a large cast of characters is so that I could dip in and out of their lives so that sometimes in a book you won't see, for example, Thomas Linley. Um, Mm -hmm. For example, in my book Deception on His Mind, he has a brief, brief cameo appearance. And and I don't even think he has a line of dialogue. It's just at at his wedding, and that's it. Um, And I have other books where um, Barbara Havers isn't in it. Lindley only has a cameo appearance in um, A Place of Hiding, and that's a book that Deborah and Simon St. James are in. So I I decided right from the beginning I would never have an obligatory scene because I've read books 
where they drag in some character simply because the editor has obviously said to the writer, oh, no, you must put Aunt Susie into this book because the reader expects to see her. So don't do that. Even with a crowbar, apparently. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. Shoehorn the babe in because the reader wants it. No. my, My philosophy has always been the reader does not know what the reader wants. And I don't mean that in a nasty way. What I mean is that the reader needs to be surprised. If you're always giving the reader what the reader wants, then really what's the point? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I happen to love Aunt Susie, so <laughs> you heard her in any time. But um, you know what? I, I, I thought this was very interesting because it's it's uh, the Believing the Light, your um, number 17 Inspector Lindley mystery novel, is... Uh, you know, of course, it's an Inspector Lindley mystery novel, and I found that he wasn't, in my opinion, the the thrust of the story. Of course, the no. murder is. The murder is. The crime is wonderful. And I was just so enjoying the fact that he's almost, he's not secondary, definitely not secondary he's, because he's... He's in, part of a team. He's, he's part, part of, of the team. team. Yeah. And the team is fabulous. Now, and, and the reason I, I say that is because... They all sound so distinctly different. Um, that's kind of redundant, but um, they do. They're just clear in my head who's speaking at any time, whether or not there's an action tag or a reference to that character, um, it, which is wonderful. I love to be able to read when I don't have to be told who's speaking. Um, Barbara Havers is definitely different than uh, Thomas Lindley, of course, and but... But uh, Deborah St. James is different from Barbara as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, for so many reasons, I, I wouldn't even be able to tell someone what the reasons are. It's just the voice I hear, the sound of your characters. How do you go about creating each distinct voice for your characters? Well, what I try to remember is that where where the voice comes from is um all it, it comprises all of the elements that um have gone into the character's making so so for example you know Thomas Lindley who is from an aristocratic family who went to um to Eton who went to Oxford is going to have a very different way of speaking and attitude toward life than Barbara Havers, who is from the working class, who went to a comprehensive high school and and never then went beyond that, who will then be different from Simon St. James, who's from an upper-middle-class family, who also went to Eton but then went to University of Glasgow and studied science. And so all of these people... Um, have to have voices that are informed by their not only their background by their but but also by their attitudes. So linguistically, there are things, certain expressions that, um, for example, that Barbara would use that um, that Deborah St. James, for example, wouldn't use because although she too is from essentially a working class family, she's married into this upper class family, and her whole experience has been with the upper classes because of, because her father has worked for St. James. So yeah. she so she hasn't really experienced the world of the working class. Um and then and then Lindley, of course, with his background, would never use the same kind of language that um that 
that Barbara Havers would use. But he also his language is also shaded by the fact that he is a much more emotional and emotionally available man than St. James is, because St. James is very, very self-contained, very, um, very, um, very introspective, very um, practical, scientific in his approach. So he will have a much more precise language than even Lynn Lindley would have. So all of those things go into making their dialogue what it is when you see it in the book. Wow. Well, it and it's done so incredibly well, and I just have to say thank you for this. Um, uh, it's a, a wonderful book, and I can't wait. I am fighting myself not going to the end and finding out who done it. I'm serious, and uh, so I'm I'm having to say no a lot to myself. But um, tell us what you have coming up, what your plans are for um, your work. What what do you what do you want to uh, tell us about the near future, and then we have to wrap. Well, um, what I'm, I'm working on a couple of things right now. Um, I'm doing the 18th Lindley novel, which is set for the first time um, not only in England but also in Italy, and oh, wow. um, it has it has two locations: Lon- London and Lucca. And the story takes place in both of those locations, so it's a real departure for hey. me setting part of it in a in a foreign country and also to be um to be using my uh my um my italian which i have been uh studying now for six and a half years so that's really that's really been sort of fun in the meantime i am also i've also started a young adult series and the first book in that series will be published in um september it's a book called the edge of nowhere and it takes place here on whidbey island where i live that that is a um, will be a series of of eight novels featuring uh, a cast of continuing characters, and the, the structurally the uh, the books will use that same technique of bringing some characters to the forefront and other characters receding into the background for a book. Although the the central character, a girl called Becca King, will be in all of the novels as a dominant. Uh, dominant character because it's essentially her story that the eight books will be telling. So I am um, on the second one in in that series right now. So I'm basically doing uh, the Lindley novel and the um, the Whidbey Island novel. And the Whidbey is the YA, the young adult. Yeah, the young adult novel. Yeah. yeah. And the and the title of the first young adult novel is what? And it's being it's released in September, correct? Yes, it comes out September 4th, and it's called The Edge of Nowhere. The Edge of Nowhere. That is, sounds absolutely wonderful. I can't wait to uh, to read that one as well. Um, but I just want to tell you, thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been completely different <laughs> than any it's other so much show. Fun. <laughs> We've never ever bashed another author on our show, <laughs> and that was actually quite enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't believe me if I hadn't. I probably it wouldn't be so fresh on my mind if I hadn't listened to the first uh, chapter and a half uh, read oh aloud God. last night. But oh I, I certainly urge urge you to uh, to look at the first two chapters and see if you yeah, don't I'm, agree. <laughs> I'm definite, definitely will be doing that. And I just want to say for uh, Michael Angel and I, um, thank you so much for joining You're us. You're welcome. And, um, we Thanks hope you come back season. after your after your um, the 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 edge of oh why am I forgetting the title the, <laughs> the edge of nowhere the edge of nowhere of course and where my brain is we hope you come back <laughs> when that releases that would be wonderful to have you back and talk about that book too absolutely okay. love to thank you very much all right 
Thank you, Elizabeth. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'll tell you, I don't think we've ever had an interview <laughs> quite like that. <laughs> and, and that is lovely and refreshing and, and fun. And uh, for everybody that are that is, are still in the chat room, remember you can find Elizabeth George's books at elizabethgeorgeonline.com. And you can find her on Facebook as well. And she's everywhere. You'll find her at every living, breathing bookstore in the world <laughs> and, um, and uh, in the online major uh, bookstores as well, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and um, and all of those. So please uh, check out her work. She's fabulous. And um, I'm just enjoying the heck out of reading Believing the Lie, which is her latest novel. And and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to have her back for the edge of nowhere, her her foray into young adult fiction as well. But um, so we're at the end of the show, Michael. Um, tell us something that we haven't heard. Well, um, I think I will have to get back to you on that because I'm too busy trying to find that particular book she recommended, so to speak. Uh, I want to read that and Possession. see uh, how bad it really is. <laughs> oh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, but but I'm going to read also the one that she recommended highly, which is Possession. I, I would like to read that one as well. But I, everybody in the chat room, thank you for joining us. I, it, as always, it's such a pleasure to see um, people show up in the chat room and then talk and laugh and, and be uh, camaraderie and and have uh, a little bit of fun in the chat room. So thank you all for joining us. And don't forget, you can read more about Elizabeth George's books by going to her website, elizabethgeorgeonline.com. And, um, and for your information, a podcast of this amazing and unusual <laughs> interview with Ms. George and other broadcasts can be found at blogtalkradio.com slash dialogue. And please, we'd invite, we'd like to invite you to visit our website, uh, dialoguebetweenthelines.com. It's dialoguebtl.com. And you can find us again on Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tune in next week, June 7th, when our guest will be William Beck, author of Caribbean Agenda. And you can learn more about Mr. William Beck by going to his website, booksbybeck.com. Thanks again for listening to today's broadcast hosted with my great co-host, Michael Angel. And thanks to all those who chatted with us in the chat room. Don't forget to tell your friends about Dialogue. We only hope to serve you, our listeners, and our guests. Until next week, I'm Susan Wingate with Michael Angel. Bye-bye.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.